Welcome to Growth Colony, Australia's B2B growth podcast. I'm Alex Hipwell. Each episode, we bring you B2B founders, CMOs, marketing and sales leaders to find out what makes them successful and what was behind their failures. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hoda with XGrowth, and today I'm talking to Bron Gondwana, Chief Executive Officer at Fastmail, about data privacy and the fast-moving, rapid-changing landscape that it's operating in. On that note, let's dive in. Bron, thanks for coming on the pod. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Look, for, for maybe some of, the, some of the people who are not familiar with Fastmail, can you give us a quick background? Because I, I love the Fastmail story and, and why you kind of created the company and, and, and everything that comes with it. Can you give us a very short intro to Fastmail? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've been around for over 20 years now. We were founded right here in Melbourne. Uh, by some people who wanted to have an email service for for serious use. So they were building their own business and discovered that there was really nothing between the ISP email service that was designed for home users and and not really usable and the big on-premises thousands of user exchange system. And so they built their own email system and I guess in the same way that other companies have built their own messaging system and then pivoted to become a messaging company, they spun off a email company with this little email service they'd built for themselves, discovered other people wanted it, and it grew from there. Um, I joined in 2004 as a sysadmin and programmer and was with the company through until 2010 when we were sold to Opera Software in Norway. I moved to Oslo, lived there for two years operating out of the, the head office in Oslo and then moved back to Australia in 2013. Opera moved out of the area that our business would have suited. Their, their plans had included building a social network that email was a component of, and they decided not to do that. So they didn't need the email service anymore, and we bought the company back from them towards the end of 2013. In 2015, we then purchased another email company who are even slightly older than us, um, Pobox and Listbox, which were based in Philadelphia. So we now joined them together and the larger Fastmail company is, is headquartered in Melbourne, but also has quite a large Philadelphia presence. I love it. And and Fastmail has a very strong focus on privacy. Is that correct? It's kind of something that, that's grown with us. We've always had values that included privacy and we moved towards only selling a paid service. We had a, a free trial and then a free-only service that was going to be advertising-supported in our early days. And looking at just the kind of advertisements that came in and the business model around that, people were not upgrading to paid users. And email, of course, is an area where you get abuse as well. It just wasn't worth having the free service. And we discovered that the people who were coming to us were looking for privacy, and that fit well with with what we wanted to do. And so that's what we've become um, but privacy has never been our number one you know, privacy at all costs focus. Privacy is important to people and it's important to us that they have that. But it's also important that they have a good service and that lets them get their work done, lets them get on with their day. So we didn't want to be, you know, it's so private that it's wrapped in concrete and in a bunker at the bottom of the ocean with no network or power, which is the ultimate private data, right? But you can't use that. You need it to be both private and usable. Yeah, got it. Got it. I mean, that's uh, that's one of the reasons I, I was super excited to talk to you about because it is a fine balance between usability and privacy. And some companies rely more on the privacy and some others more on usability slash uh, some of the other things. 
so, so that, and, and that was particularly why I wanted to touch on privacy and, and talk about that. And the, the first thing that I wanted to ask you is if you could maybe give us a bit of a picture about the kind of the, the pic, the, the paint, paint us a picture about how privacy laws have evolved over time. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the big name that I think everyone knows is the GDPR, which is the European data privacy law that came through a couple of years ago. There's also the California Consumer Privacy Act in the US, which has come through. Brazil is in the process of adding a similar law. And so that's one area in which privacy has been evolving a lot. But uh, privacy laws have been playing catch up to changing technology because the technology is moving faster than than lawyers can follow up. I guess to to talk about that a bit more, 200 years ago, you could have a conversation inside the four walls of your own house and you'd be pretty certain that the only people who could hear you were either the people you could see around you or people who are quite physically nearby with the risks of being caught that come from snooping outside someone's window. These days, the walls really do have ears. Your pocket, your stereo, your TV is probably listening to you and sending your words off to who knows where to be stored for who knows how long either by an attacker who's hacked into them or by the whoever sold you that equipment and has added that capability uh, with or without your knowledge. So you don't know where anything you do or say is being stored or for how long. So privacy laws are, are scrambling to deal with that. There's wormholes all through space and time and what you do can be observed anywhere in the world at any time now or in the future in high fidelity. So that that is a big challenge for the laws is that they they have to deal with the fact that there's these little wormholes through space and time. That's a great way to start this conversation. Okay, well, what, what do you, and, and what about Australia? To, to paint us a little bit of a picture about what's what's happening in Australia when it comes to privacy. Another story, I guess, I lived, lived in Norway for a couple of years with Opera and over there I had a person number. So there was a number, every person gets assigned a number and that number is used everywhere to identify you. So when I moved house, I updated my address with the government within two weeks of moving, as you're required to do, with that person number. And everyone who sent me regular bills or regular official communication got the new address straight away because that it goes into that central register and, and you can be sent that. In 1985, there was a proposal for an Australia card, which was shot down largely because of privacy concerns. The idea that if you have this one number that links you to everything, then that's bad for your privacy. So instead, we everyone has a tax file number, a Medicare number, maybe a personal ABN. And technology has moved so fast that pretty much everyone who's collecting uh, dossiers on people, collecting all the, the data about you, has all these numbers, all, these, all this information about you, fully cross-linked, et cetera. And meanwhile, the individual pays the cost of the security theater that's still there, uh, pretending that these things are private. So you have to memorize these numbers and tell them to government departments that have legislated amnesia, but everyone else can can use them. So we're getting the downsides of not having the privacy along with the downsides of not having the easy linking. Yeah, got it, um, got it. So that's, that's really interesting. And I think Australia, there's going to be a push from Australians with the demand for something like GDPR type protections where we have the ability to control what happens to the data about us and that people who are collecting our data are upfront and honest about how they're going to use it and what they're going to use it for um, and need to either have a, a valid reason or our consent to use that data rather than you know, 
check this box to be harassed by us forever and have no way of getting off our list. Uh, by the way, you need to check this box in order to use our service. Got it. Got it. So, so you, you, you reckon GDPR or a version of it is coming to Australia? I, I think it's likely to. I think there'll be a pressure for it. Um, the, there's obviously downsides to something like GDPR as well. And so the big issue there for us, we spent quite a lot of effort becoming GDPR compliant. And it wasn't because it didn't align perfectly with our values. Uh, we've always been upfront about where the data is going. We've been upfront about the fact that we don't sell it. We ask people to pay us money in exchange for service. It's a nice single purpose transaction. It's very honest and upfront. But despite that, we still had to do a lot of work to make sure that all the, the text was legally compliant with the GDPR. We had to do a lot of documentation of the relationships with our partners just to prove that anyone who could possibly access data that we had an agreement in place with them around it. So there was a lot of compliance work, even though we didn't have to change anything. We just had to document it and get the compliance in place. And this is somewhere that excludes small players and entrants from the market because there's quite a lot of work just to be compliant with all the rules and regulations that you have to follow. On the flip side, you don't want some fly-by-night coming together and slapping everything in an open database on the internet that someone can do, download an Excel spreadsheet from a, a, an open Dropbox or S3 bucket and, and there's all the data, really quite private data about people out in public. So Siphon it out. It, it's, it's tricky both ways. And the idea of treating data more like toxic waste rather than gold, I think, is a good way of looking at it. If you, really? Oh, that's, that's, that's an interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. If you're collecting data about people, um, you need to treat it as a risk rather than just as a, a golden egg that you can go back and mine later. If you are the, the source of a leak of a bunch of information about people, then you're doing real harm. So having legislation that captures the fact that, that, that you're working with toxic waste and that it could leak. So you'd better make sure you have sufficient protections to stop it leaking what do you think that means for marketers so like from our perspective what we're seeing from for marketing is that people ask about the protections we have in place and for marketers it's, it's a lot about making sure that you collect data and you tell people what you're going to use it for people don't want to be followed around the internet I think there's a recent story where a developer spun up a, an Ubuntu image in a cloud service just to check some Linux tools you wanted to to run some Linux tools in this cloud environment to see that where things were connected to and how it all worked. And the cloud service then let Ubuntu know that one of the images had been spun up by this person and a sales rep from Ubuntu tracked down that person by searching their name, discovered their email address and contacted them out of the blue offering to be their rep and to, to sell them the service. And like, that's really creepy. Um, so I think the, for marketers seeing that People are becoming more aware of the fact that their data is is getting mixed and uh, diced up like a meat patty or something, you know, bits of a thousand cows all in this one patty. If you get data from a thousand different sources all together and people are getting a contact that uses information they didn't didn't know was out there about them and that they didn't want known about them necessarily. So marketers need to appear genuine and appear to have have earned the right to speak to you. your inbox it's not a right to have access to people's inboxes it's, it's kind of something you're granted privilege. and yeah. So, yeah it is a privilege and and to treat it with care yeah because I, I don't think that 
especially maybe not we have the anti-spam legislation in australia but it's not really driven home of uh, of what that means for organizations especially in in us i think things definitely are changing in in europe i know definitely things are changing in in california but uh, i i think we're still at the at the at the beginning of the journey here in uh, here in australia compared to a lot of other places and uh, you still see a lot of marketing people in the marketing and sales using data quite loosely and uh, and pretty relaxed. And it, I mean, there's some tragedy, the common stuff here that if you write down your, your name and your phone number when you go into a cafe because you want to be on their COVID tracking information, you don't then want to get start getting random texts advertising stuff to that phone number. You know, uh, with we know that you you travel to this area frequently because you've shown up on COVID tracking lists there. You know that, that will scare people off providing their data. So knowing what the data is being provided for and what it will be used for gives people more trust in being willing to provide it. Yeah, <laughs> do you reckon? But do you reckon that's easy to do? Because it just it sounds so so resource intensive it sounds like a lot of work even for me as the consumer to read when i'm signing up let's just set, take that example that you just said to read what what that information i just checked in in a in a cafe and uh i have to go through and understand how that data is going to be used i mean a lot of situation is like the you know the, the terms and conditions of, of Google and Apple, where you're just like, yep, sure thing, man. I'll just take this off and give me that next button. And I'm going next. Well, you've got no choice either. Often, you, in order to get on with your life, you need to accept the terms and conditions for something because it's blocking you from doing something you need to do. Uh, if I bought an Android phone, I'm going to have to agree to a bunch of terms and conditions from Google, or I, I have a brick that cost me $1,000. Uh, it's not even very good as a brick. So, <laughs> yeah, marketer. Where do marketers go wrong when it comes to uh, when it comes to privacy and data? I think the biggest thing is collecting things under false pretenses, which mm. like that that COVID thing was a fine example there. Yeah, right. And and coming across as like stalkers. I I have a few years ago. My wife was interested in a particular model of bra and came in and mentioned it to me. And so I was sitting at my computer and I, I typed it into Google to have a look and, and see what it was. And we chatted about it. For the next couple of months while I'm sitting at work, every time I went to a website that had was linked into any advertising networks, I'd have images of scantily clad women appearing on my screen. It's totally unprofessional. People <laughs> exist in different contexts throughout their day. And so treating people as if they're in the same context at all times and, and following them around. The other, the other great example there is, uh, we see you've purchased a dishwasher. Let me advertise dishwashers to you for the next six months. Like, I've got a dishwasher now. I don't need another <laughs> one. One is what I need. And I bought it. But so using data sets like that, where it's, it's a data set that's kind of extracted this this person has shown some interest in that so let's bombard them with that at all times and with no appreciation for the context they're in at the time mm. yeah i think uh, you're right i think that is gonna the, i think those are gonna be 
pieces where somebody would see something and then they would go back to that company and say, I want to see all the data that you have on me and then try to track that back to the, to the company. And I feel like a lot of organizations just rely on the fact that it's a long process and betting on the, on the, on the thing that the people are not going to follow up. People are not going to ask about it um, because yeah, it's too hard. Well, you can't. I, I can't spend my life chasing up every company that's ever got my phone number from anywhere. Um, I get the occasional cold call trying to, to sell me on financial property purchases or, or whatever, or, you know, the fake calls. This is the Australian Taxation Office. We, we've opened a case into you. You must uh, call this, call this yeah. number and pay us money right now or, or you will I remember the first one. Yeah, I remember the first time I got that. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I didn't grow up here. So I've been I've been here for a couple of years and I wasn't I wasn't completely sure how things operate. Right. And the first time I got that call, I was like, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. What what is this? Like, what is happening? And uh, I was uh, I was I was a bit tripped. But uh, I, when I came to my senses and I was like, I, I don't think this is a real call. But you're right. You're right. That's you know that's definitely one of the one of the avenues that, that a lot of people explore. And uh, it's, yeah, so it's from from advertising bras to uh, ATO is gonna is gonna take a legal action. Yeah. And how do you distinguish whether something is a real marketing message or a scam? Another interesting case I had was I got a phone call out of the blue one day by someone who claimed to be from the branch of my bank in an area that I'd just moved to a few months earlier. So she was now my, my local rep and calling me to, to ask questions about my banking uh, and asked me to identify myself. She'd initiated the call and asked me to provide personal data to identify myself. And I said, uh, no, you've got to be kidding, right? How do I how do I get back to you when I initiate the call through to the bank and then I'll identify myself to you, but I'm not identifying to a random person who's called me. She wasn't a scammer, but how do you distinguish between that and an actual scammer? We operate on heuristics there and the more of our personal data is known. If you know somebody's mother's maiden name, the color of their first car and the name of their first pet, you can be them on the internet. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. You can (laughs) copy and paste that person. Um, very yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's it's crazy. Some of these some of these practices. I I've been in that situation before, and I had a long conversation. I'm not providing you any details. Um, you can tell me what you want. Uh, you're not getting any details. And their responses, they're also going off a script. And they're like, I can't, I can't move forward if you don't provide me. Well, I'm like, well, you called me, and uh, if if you can't, you got to go back and find another way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she, she wound up identifying herself by sending me a message for their secure net banking system, which uh, that's, that's fine. I trust that. You got, you got further than I did uh, in, that, uh, in that conversation. I did not get that far. <laughs> tell, us, t- tell me a little bit about some of the, because you're, you're, you know, I feel you are more aware of, of what is happening in the privacy space than, than the average person. What are some of the stories that uh, you come across in when it comes to privacy that maybe we don't come across in in normal in our normal life? I mean, honestly, I don't see much of that in our company because Fastmail doesn't sell data to customers. So the stories I hear are the same stories in the tech press that everyone else hears or can see. We get people occasionally surprised that we can see their data, like our our 
senior sysadmins and operations people can access the data for their email on our servers because we need to be able to to fix problems. I've got some great technical debugging stories of, of weird stuff happening with emails that were an exact multiple of 4,096 bytes long. And, and so we're hitting a memory overrun if a, a particular rule in that person's email incoming rules matched that message and matched the end of it. So it ran over in memory. Like that kind of thing, you have to look at the raw message to see what's going on. But we've put a lot of protections in place in our system over the years so that we now obfuscate everyone's email when you go in to look at it at first. So that if any of our support agents or even the, the senior staff go in to look at a problem with an account, start off with we hide all the details so you can't see the actual emails. You can just see the minimum you need to in order to debug the problem. So a lot of that kind of protection has been built in over the years, but some people kind of imagine that it's all a black box that, that we, <laughs> yeah, can't we can't see, see it all. Yeah. But yeah, one of the scariest things from a privacy perspective in, in the wider world is how much highly sensitive data gets stored unencrypted in random file shares and just nobody finds them. So there's there's so much data that you know will be on a thumb drive that someone takes home and, and drops. Or I don't know if you heard about the story with some filing cabinets in Canberra that were discovered at an auction house full of highly confidential documents that it just hadn't been destroyed. They'd been sold off from some office that had them in and nobody realized. Oh, wow. I did so, not yeah, hear about this. It was a couple of years ago um, and they had not been correctly destroyed. So all these confidential documents were just there in the filing cabinet. Someone bought these things at auction, opened them up and they were full of all this paper. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the government. Yeah. So mistakes happen all the time. And so it's surprising how much data gets printed out and faxed and scanned back in or hand data entered back into another system and and how many places data kind of seeps out around the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I remember, you know, watching the movie Social Network and, uh, and I was watching it with my partner and, you know, she was fascinated when, when she was like, they were talking about all the data that, that they were capturing. Now, I had a background where we did a lot of work in product design and uh, in in the sense of software, product design and analytics and capturing that information. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is public knowledge. Well, I thought it was like, it was pretty, pretty obvious, but then I just realized that it's not, you know, like the amount of data, just like you said, people think it's a black box. And, and when you like, let me just open this up and see what is happening behind the scene and all the all the data that the organization is capturing and that they can capture it's it's mind-boggling for for consumers and and uh, and customers so uh, yeah that that black box that you think that perception that it's the black box and i'm just i'm just i'm just in my own world here and doing my thing but what really happened is that this is feeding into this this uh whether it's the analytics uh, dashboard or whatever it is it's it's feeding into these these systems that um a lot of it can be intricately uh, monitored. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that's uh, that's uh, the case with all companies, but uh, it's just having that knowledge just, I think, changes people's perception um, about what's I've going got, on. I've got another great anecdote about uh, data oh, security. Go on, go on. Um, in second year university, I was in the computer lab one day poking around, as you do, you know, students poke at everything. And I discovered that my university lecturer had an open network share on his computer 
that contained a draft of the upcoming exam paper. Oh, wow. That he'd, he'd just shared it there to a colleague and it was openly available on the network. And one of the hardest parts with security is it's not obvious when it's not keeping out someone that it should. Um, people usually only see the happy path where if they can access what they expect to, then that's what they know. But do, can others access it too? It's really hard to know. Yeah, very true. Very true. Oh, look, I, I have a bunch of stories from school as well of, of like what people did in exams. I won't, I won't go into details here, but, uh, but those yeah, are always limitations. So that's it. For me. That's, <laughs> it. <laughs> that's it. Now, Bron, is there, is there anything else around privacy, around how it relates to marketing and what is going on in the market currently that uh, you think I didn't cover in our questions that it's, it's worth mentioning? I think the, the main thing is the brand damage if you're found to be the source of a data leak. Um, it, it can cause quite a lot of damage to the brand that you're marketing for if you collect data on people and then that leaks out. So that goes back to the, the toxic waste kind of view of things. Um, I, I think it's, it's good that there's a move towards marketing more to the context that people are in rather than trying to track the person. Um, as people become more aware of privacy and, and try and opt out of the services that are all about mixing and matching and trying to micro-target them. That's a really good point because that's also like you might be collecting data and it's illegal, right? But when people find out the amount of data that you have, that backfires. And that's just, you know, how do how do comp how can companies overcome? And it comes to the point that you said that you have to educate of where this is going to be used, how it's going to be used, and and that that whole ball game of of where where the use cases are. So it's a such such a good point that you you say it's a it's toxic waste rather than rather than gold or oil. Yeah, are, are you doing something that a reasonable person would do? Is is part of the question there? I mean, pe people will there will be unreasonable fanatics on all sides, but the the general person will say. You know, is it reasonable for you to collect someone's email address so that you can contact them again? Yes. Is it reasonable for you to then sell that to every spammer's list in the world? No. Is it reasonable for you to tie that email address to enough psychometric data that you can pretty much fake up an email that pretends to be from one of their friends recommending a product? And Probably as we not. get into yeah. to smarter AIs and to, to more capabilities in machine learning, it gets to the point where you could falsify an email from some like every single person rather than getting a mass broadcast spam could get a targeted message that says, Hey, you, this is your friend recommending this thing to you. And it's yeah, a lot harder and, then and, for the, and, the human bullshit filter to figure that out. Yeah. That's not going to be a, uh, you on a phone call and be like, no, nah, I'm not going to give you my details. That's going to be a different conversation. All right. No, I, I, I love it, Brian. Thank you so much. Now I have a couple of rapid questions that I want to ask you yep. that will smash through these really quick. Uh, and I ask this from everybody. Number one is what is one resource? It could be a book, blog, podcast, talk, whatever it is, but one resource that fundamentally changed the way you work, work or live. It's not so much a specific thing, um, but one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is I've been reading a lot about poverty and how it changes people's, that growing up in poverty changes people's behavior um, and thinking not so much about poverty in terms of money, but poverty in terms of time. Um, I, I grew up without much money, but wasn't massively stressed about it. But I see, I'm, I'm only circulated amongst people in the Western Australian world who are 
financially doing okay. Uh, they don't have trouble putting a roof over their head or feeding themselves, feeding their families, but they have no time and feel completely stressed about time. So I'm trying to live with more of an abundance mindset rather than a poverty mindset about my time and not resent people needing it or overfill it, um, which is a bit hard to do today where I've had four meetings back to back and I've got an in-person <laughs> meeting to run off to soon after this. Uh, but yeah, my work in progress to improve my life is to have less of a poverty mindset around time and and not uh, not hoard it or, or, or resent its use. Got it. Okay. All right. That's awesome. Um, question number two. If you could give one advice to uh, to to marketers, what what would it be? Uh, be honest to yourself um, with your customers as well. Misleading money can can make you money in the short term, but you have to live with the guilt of having done that for the rest of your life. You know, you need to live with yourself for the rest of your life. So we have a company that isn't using any dark patterns on our customers. And it feels great. So don't. My advice would be don't discount your future self when you're wondering how far you can flex your morals and, and still sleep at night because you will be looking back over this for the rest of your life. The rest of your I life. That's one. a long, long time. All right, question number three. What are the influencers that you follow in, uh, in whether it's in the marketing space or some of the influencers that you follow? I'm sure the correct answer here is the Growth Colony podcast, right? Oh, that's right. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't super particularly follow influencers. I appeared on the Use Fathom podcast last year. I'm very happy to give a shout out to them. They're navigating similar challenges of, of marketing growth while respecting people's privacy. I have a lot of respect for what DuckDuckGo is doing. Um, they, they market themselves through privacy, but they know it's not just enough to be private. You need to have that good user experience. People are trying to get something done in their life, and so their service or tool needs to let them achieve their goals and ideally in a way that makes their day pleasant. Yeah, very true, very true. Last thing that uh, that I have is what is kind of exciting you, what what excites you right now about uh, about all the things that you're doing and, and you get kind of pumped in the morning? Yeah, uh, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit about the uh, the, the overly connected world comments, uh, but the fact that you can sell to the entire world. Fastmail has more than 100 customers each in over 100 com- countries, which is it's just crazy. Thankfully, we bill everyone in US dollars, so it simplifies the pricing a fair bit. And tax compliance is a, a ton of work. But yeah, I'm really excited about our newest product, Topic Box, which is designed for the business space. I talk about email being your electronic memory. It's something you can, it doesn't change your emails come to you and they're exactly the same. So unlike a website where you can go back a week later and it's different than what you read and you know, kind of feel a bit gaslit that you see, you say, that's not what I remember reading. The world's changed underneath me. Email doesn't change and it's your memory forever. Topic box is that for organizations. So it's around maintaining an email history that's not just in someone's inbox. It's in a shared space with really good search and, and really good discoverability. So when you add a new member to your team, they don't need to ask around to find all the facts. It's all there. Uh, email contains a lot of useful information for the organization. Um, so I'm really excited about surfacing that and about building more that allows people to get more out of the email they already have, the data that they're already collecting. And it's all focused on making things better for that individual and wasting less of their time. Um, we, A lot of websites try and keep your eyeballs there for as long as possible. So you look at the metrics that a lot of websites use to see whether they're serving their customers well. And it's about how long are their eyeballs looking at our site. 
how much are they interacting with us. Our goal is the opposite. We want people to spend the least amount of time they need to doing their email. So they're getting a lot of value out of it, but they're not having to invest a lot of time just to get, just to use it. Yeah. Dwell, decrease the dwell time. I love that. I love that. And that's, oh my God. I mean, you know, a lot of these platforms just suck your, your, your time. And, uh, and, you know, before you know, it, it's completely disappeared. I, I love that, that, that mantra and, and, uh, and, and ethos. Well, Bron, thank you so much. I, I really enjoy this conversation and thanks for, for your time for uh, coming on the podcast. You're welcome. It's been excellent. Thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. See you later. Hey, it's Alex again from X Growth. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It would really help get the word out to other B2B professionals. If you're hungry for more B2B content, make sure to join our Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack, where we share the latest B2B news tactics, tips, and chat about problems we're facing in the B2B space and find solutions together. That's growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you in the next episode.